Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Giselle Donnelly, and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I am partnered today by... Yulia Zhoja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown, and George Washington University. And our third colleague, Dalibor Rohach, thinks that he deserves a summer vacation, so he's taking this podcast off, which is really unfortunate because we've brought back one of our favorite guests, all-time favorite guests, Mason Clark from the Institute for the Study of War, uh, who's been all over conflict since uh, day one and is one of the most savvy analysts to be found anywhere. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that have emerged along a line which runs from the Baltic to the Black Sea. We call this the Eastern Front. We also talk about why these matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us. Mason, welcome back. It's good to have you. Uh, It's been far too long. Why don't we just start with the one over the universe assessment? As I say, we haven't heard from you for a while. I'd be interested to know from you what your sort of bottom line upfront view of the Ukrainian counteroffensive, capital U, capital C, is where it is where it's going, what we've seen, how to how do you evaluate it thus far? Sure. Yeah, I'm very glad to be back. It's been a crazy year. I feel like I blinked uh, and most of it went by. So the Ukrainian counteroffensive uh, that we think started around June of this year has been progressing, um, making marginal gains and is very intentionally focused on degrading Russian forces rather than uh, conducting wide sweeping and fast uh, maneuver warfare. So What we've been seeing is that in that early June period, the Ukrainian military attempted to do frontal assaults against very well-prepared Russian defenses, and I can talk a little bit about that later, um, without air power, because they haven't been provided that, uh, and with relatively green troops, and somewhat unsurprisingly faced a lot of difficulties. There were some early casualties, um, and the Ukrainian military decided to essentially trade speed for preserving its forces. And that's what we've been observing throughout the rest of the summer is rather than trying to replicate the sort of sweeping advances and collapsing Russian forces of the Kharkiv counteroffensive last year, which was sort of a a perfect storm of very disorganized and demoralized Russian forces and very effective Ukrainian attacks, what we're seeing now is much more like what the Kherson uh, counteroffensive in southern Ukraine was last year of a series of steady strikes on both Russian frontal positions as well as interdiction into their rear areas, um, coupled with these more tactical advances along the front lines of sort of Ukrainian troops fighting as they have throughout the war with this newly provided equipment rather than trying to conduct you know, brigade level mechanized assaults on what has been unfortunately incredibly well developed and effective Russian defenses. So it's going slower than, frankly, everyone would like. Uh, the Ukrainians acknowledge that um, this has been an adaptation, but they are having some success in this new approach. They haven't committed all of their reserves. The Russians are, I think, incorrectly claiming that they are uh, based on a few scattered observations, and they are making small gains. They just recently captured uh, the key town of Urbotnye, Um, And more importantly, they're seriously degrading Russian forces on the front line. Um, And I think the Russian defenses are very brittle. So there's a real chance of the Ukrainians being able to achieve 
at minimum localized breakthroughs and collapses of Ukrainian, uh, pardon me, of Russian lines. Though this is going to certainly continue into the fall and winter. This the the counteroffensive is not going to wrap up by the end of the summer. If I could just put one more thing on the table, I mean, the since the obvious character of this has revealed itself you know, some time ago. The question in my mind has always been how nimble the Russians will be at plugging gaps in their lines. And uh, will the Ukrainians be quicker to disrupt reinforcement and resupply activities than the Russians uh, will be in, you know, as I say, plugging gaps in, in the in the line. It, it, one thing that was pretty clear is that the Russians did a lot of digging and, uh, you know, dumping of pillboxes and dragon's teeth, uh, concrete obstacles during the winter. But the question was, did they have the firepower and the manpower to really you know, you know, maximize those barriers? And it does seem lately like there might be some cracks in things. As you say, it's it's been slow, it's been incremental, but the camel's straws are kind of building up to, to some degree. The, the Ukrainian penetrations seem to have begun to get through the first line of, or, or Ukrainian units seem to have begun to knock some holes in the, the very front line of Russian defenses. So it, it seems to me like we may be entering kind of a, a phase that a might move a little bit more quicker and will really be able to tell us whether the degradation campaign that you described on the part of the Ukrainians, their, their deeper fires, along with their infiltration and, uh, um, you know, sort of more traditional trench and obstacle clearing operations will, will sort of, again, begin to pay off a little bit. I know that's a rather long-winded and leading question, but I, I'd be interested in your thoughts about what might be just on the immediate horizon in, ter in terms of the Russians' ability to bond and and uh, whether Ukraine might be at the stage where some at least tactical exploitation is is on the table for them. Sure. So I do think we're approaching a period we're going to see some more Ukrainian opportunities. Um, they are in areas starting to move through that first line of defenses, but not everywhere. And I do unfortunately think there's going to be still a lot more hard fighting to get through it in multiple places. Um, yeah. So the Russian, really the key variable here is that, so the Russians have established uh, three different lines of defense. But as far as we can tell, only that first one is fully manned. The second and third are essentially empty positions that the units... Fallback positions. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, which uh, the, the units currently on the front line are supposed to retreat to. But there doesn't seem to be any real operational Russian reserve, which is they've, you know, the, the structure of the defensive lines has been very much in line with Russian doctrine. They've executed it exactly as they were trained to. With, as far as we can tell, the exception is that you're supposed to, in the Russian system, have roughly one-ninth of your force back uh, as an operational reserve. We have seen zero evidence of that existing. And instead, when the Russians have moved troops around, they've had to pull them from a quiet part of the line and sent them somewhere else and are likely wearing down the uh, capacity of a lot of those units, which they've done sort of all war of using their airborne forces, the Vodava and other key units as sort of these fire groups without giving them any rest. The other key thing we're going to be watching uh, for in terms of Ukrainian progress is 
exactly how built out those second lines are, because, I mean, as, as has been widely reported, and as you noted, one of the biggest challenges for the Ukrainians has been getting through those minefields of not just the, the literal mine clearing equipment, but their ability to do so under fire is what a lot of those early Ukrainian attacks in June struggled with. We don't have a good sense at ISW, that is, of how well mined that second line of defenses is. If it's just as set up and the Russians have established good defensive lines and firing lanes there, we're likely going to see slower progress. If that hasn't been done at scale, um, then I think the Ukrainians are going to have a lot more opportunity. Separate from that, though, we are seeing um, the Ukrainians doing a good job, frankly, of just degrading Russian units along the front line. Um, the sort of preponderance of, uh, obviously, it's just what we can tell from confirmed imagery, of how, basically how fast the Ukrainians are destroying Russian artillery systems compared to the Russians targeting Ukrainian systems is very much in Ukraine's favor. So they are starting to erode um, that Russian defensive firepower in addition to the ongoing strikes on Russian logistics and rear areas. So I'm going to just inelegantly switch the topic, done with the nerding out. <laughs> you have to stop us from going farther down the rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm going to ask the, you know, the broad strategic political questions, which are going to slightly, I know already he's told us before the recording, annoy Mason, but nevertheless, he has to go through this. So um, uh, I'll start with the obvious issue, and that is perception versus reality. You guys are talking about reality on the ground, but the Washington Post this morning talks about perceptions and um, talks about how U.S. intelligence assessments say that Ukraine's counteroffensive will uh, fail to achieve key objectives. And I want to combine that with the perceptions that I've been getting in Europe this summer, I've just returned from Berlin a few weeks ago, there was a big scandal, it made it into English media as well, about German intelligence leaks, um, about how they're disappointed with how the counteroffensive is going, and especially about how, how much the Ukrainians have integrated that training that the Germans provided. And all through these major disappointments, um, obviously, it's a matter of where we set the goal. And the goal seems to be or seems to have been repeated in our layman's uh, media about creating or enabling the Ukrainians to do combined arms warfare in this counteroffensive, but they don't have air power. Um, and so can you help us make sense of that, Mason, this gap between expectations at, you know, at the highest level when it comes to intelligence and where we're setting goals for this counteroffensive and the reality of what the Ukrainians have in terms of instruments and what they could have achieved in this counteroffensive in 2023 compared to 2022, of course. Sure. Yeah. So I'm going to be a little annoying in my answer because I don't want to get too far into forecasting exact Ukrainian actions. But generally, I mean, I do think a lot of, you know, uh, the West has sort of put Ukraine in a bit of a catch-22 situation of the expectations for timelines of this counteroffensive were externally imposed. And the Ukrainian military and Zelensky himself has made very clear that they have no 
necessarily, you know, internal deadlines of obviously they would like to liberate the Russian occupied territory as quick as possible, but they don't have a, you know, the counteroffensive has failed if it hasn't reached X point by Y date. That has really come from a lot of, uh, you know, Western commentary and from NATO from what we can tell, where it was as sort of as you noted, the expectation was Ukraine needs to do a rapid mechanized breach of prepared Russian defensive positions, which is one of the hardest things you can do. Um, and American units at the National Training Center in Germany struggle to do it. And that's with all of the equipment and air power that they would expect. But Ukraine wasn't really given the time to prep for it. They weren't given the air power and they're doing it with relatively uh, inexperienced units. Um, and so the Ukrainian military decided to prioritize essentially uh, retaining its own forces at the cost of speed. And that's now being treated uh, in some areas as, you know, a kind of failure. So it's a little of, you know, they haven't, they weren't given the forces and equipment they would need to meet Western expectations. And then there's dissatisfaction in some circles that they haven't met those unreasonable expectations. Now, to be clear, I don't want to sugarcoat it. The Ukrainians also wanted to do a you know, rapid advance. What we're seeing now is an adaptation. Like it's, they did in fact not achieve their own objectives. And I'm, and I'm not trying to imply of, oh, this is going perfectly. Yeah, the Ukrainians have met some setbacks and the Russian defenses were unfortunately a hell of a lot better than I think a lot of people expected. But the Ukrainians have a lot of capabilities here. And I do think now on the flip side, some, uh, you know, important signs about the Russian capabilities are being missed. Of uh, They are very brittle. We are seeing a lot of complaints around the lines. Um, the Russian command structure is still just an absolute mess in terms of how units are arrayed um, and commanders are still selected really based on loyalty to Putin and not saying not not passing up bad news rather than their actual capabilities on the ground. So I do think there's a lot of space for the Ukrainians to achieve some gains here. Um, the final point I'll note is I, I it has sort of cracked me up throughout the war, but also frustrated me of there is this constant view in the US of you simply can't fight between like September and March that just isn't true on the ground. Certainly uh, the muddy season in the fall does make mechanized maneuver hard. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure that we will get a slowdown in movement as we get into the fall. Um, and the winter is, you know, it's not perfect uh, in terms of, uh, you know, capability to move. It does require more supplies, food, fuel, that sort of thing. But it's, it's not Afghanistan. There's no fighting season. It doesn't just end when it gets cold. Um, and I think that may be more realistically how the rest of this year goes is, this we're going to see this sort of steady Ukrainian action uh, on the pace of what we're seeing now extending uh, really through the rest of the year rather than there being a, a hard cutoff of the counteroffensive quote unquote ending. Can I? I need. I need. I need. I need. I need. Uh, I need some therapy here. Um, first of all, the Western and American intelligence community have got this war completely wrong from before day one, after, you know, actually accurately calling that there was going to be a war, you know, let's remember how quickly Western analysts and officers thought it would be, you know, a three-day Russian blitzkrieg. Okay, so that didn't happen. And now we have this ludicrous sort of desert storm on a pedestal idea, uh, you know, which is itself entirely ahistorical, uh, in terms of, you know, even what mechanized warfare uh, was like, especially on on a grand scale, uh, which 
let's face it, Iraq in 1991 was not. So this is, I think, more wish casting on the part of people who want Ukraine to sit down and shut up and behave and cut a deal or preserve the uh, Russian sphere of influence and the balanced power of Europe and they're playing realist games and so on and so forth. And they're just emotionally invested. As much as we are emotionally invested in Ukraine's victory, they are pretty emotionally invested in the Ukraine can't win. The Russia not losing camp. Yeah, whatever. Okay, pick your pick your term of art. And and the people who have been most, you know, the the people who were correct at the beginning have been the ones who are now saying, "Hey, this is going to be a slog." Ukraine did not at the beginning of the summer have the capabilities or the capacity to conduct, you know, large-scale combined arms operations. And so they've done the sensible thing. They've adapted to the reality of what they confront. They've conserved their most valuable assets. So if the Russians do seriously crack, they have a force. They have operational reserves, which the Russians probably don't have. So if anybody's going to land a serious blow in the next couple months, it's going to be the Ukrainian. And people should just like take a pill and chill out. Follow, you know, follow the news actually. I I find this I'm sorry, I'll stop now. I've just found this very frustrating to, you know, beyond a pretty small core of people who follow events and closely analyze what's going on. Uh, This, you know, this is like a a Churchill moment where the truth goes about clothed in a pack of lies or a cloak of of lies. And uh, look, Mason Mason is much more polite and guarded about this than uh, I could afford to be, uh, you know, unhinged. But uh, all right, I'll shut up now. Let let me then ask you a question that is for both of you. And I'd be really curious because I think there's going to be interesting nuances in that. From what Mason was describing earlier in terms of this gap between expectations and reality, and from what you're pushing against Giselle, isn't there then a presumption that this this pace that will slow down in the fall but continue through the fall and winter must for Ukrainian victory is conditioned by the quality and the quantity of military aid. And with perceptions being the way they are in both Washington and in Europe, there is an increasing risk that this military aid will slow down as we're going into closer to U.S. elections. So without going into politics, the the question that I have for both of you is how will this pace be affected in the next six months by varying degrees that we have to take into account of military aid from the West collectively, US plus Europe? Yeah. So I think, I mean, the question of Western aid to Ukraine, uh, I think could be sort of roughly split into two of high-end systems that they don't already have and sustainment for what they already do. And the high-end systems, I, uh, you know, I kind of split down the middle of, I do think, yes, I mean, Ukraine would benefit from F-16s. They would benefit from attackums and other items like that. Um, there's been a constant dynamic throughout the war of stuff gets approved to be sent when it was helpful a month prior. And so it arrives six months after it was needed. 
that stuff would help. But I also like I, I do think there's a, a tendency sometimes to overstate that of, you know, if if only Ukraine had attackums, this would be solving they'd be solving their difficulties. And that is overstating it. But the problem is, I think that the entire sort of discussion about what Ukraine needs is slightly misframed. That stuff is would be good, certainly. Any aid they can get is helpful. But what's really kneecapped them is everything coming in in drips and drabs, and they're not being uh, sort of a, a guaranteed pipeline going forwards. Because no, I mean, it's the sort of the, the simplistic way to phrase it is no U.S. or NATO military commander in their right mind would launch a major offensive not knowing if they would have the literal spare parts to repair damaged tanks and armored personnel carriers. That's what we've expected Ukraine to do. And that's really what it comes down to for me, I think, and what will enable them to do this well is just providing them the assurance and that pipeline to know that they can do this for the long haul and that they'll be able to replace losses. They'll be able to you know, supply the new Western provided artillery systems that have been so effective. They'll have storm shadow missiles in order to continue their strikes on Russian rear areas. And there's now this sort of like middle thing of they don't they don't have the mass and the high-end systems to do a rapid breakthrough, no matter the cost, but they also can't really plan for longer-term operations because they're not being assured that they'll be able to repair Leopard 2s when they break down and that sort of thing. Um, and the Ukrainians are certainly making the best of it and dealing with what I've got to imagine is one of the most hellacious logistics systems that has been seen in decades of operating equipment that they've just been trained on in the last year from a dozen or more countries um, is got to be really difficult and is being more complicated by this, you know, not giving not giving them assurances that it'll, they'll be able to have that for the long run. Yeah, just to gild that lily a little bit, I mean, just take, for example, the cases of like tanks and fighting vehicles, for example. They have, I don't know, a small batch of every kind of recent generation Western equipment. They have M1s or they're beginning to get M1s, British Challenger tanks. They have some Leopards from Germany. Not, I think not the Leopard. Do they have Leopard 2? Mason, I don't know. They have a melange of Leopard 1s from elsewhere uh, around Western Europe. Tanks that were basically in mothballs, uh, you know, had not been typically, you know, maintained uh, to, to combat standards. You know, they were in storage and so on and so forth. So if, you know, if the Ukrainians have maybe 10 well-equipped brigades of, uh, you know, with Western relatively modern Western, it's more than likely that every brigade has a little bit different mix of this, that, and the other, which multiplies that logistics challenge. Just, you can't borrow, you can't like slap a Abrams engine in a Leopard. <laughs> you know, you can't do what supply sergeants have been doing since time immemorial is uh, swiping stuff from neighboring units. Um, it, it's just, you know, to appreciate the, the internal challenges that the Ukrainian army has just to sort of like get across the line of departure, let alone sustain a penetration if they were able to uh, create one, is something that no Western, and certainly the U.S. Army and the U.S. military has almost, I mean, has never had to face. So, yeah, again, it, we suggest the, the Ukrainians are doing as well as they sh should be doing, I would say. 
And um, and and it does. You are quite correct, though, Yulia. It does. The, the, I'm worried about the political support too. The Republicans are whining about the next Ukraine uh, supplemental that the Biden administration has uh, requested. Uh, and for its part, the Biden administration has always been hesitant and, you know, taking one step at a time in terms of making requests and providing equipment. Yeah, no, I, um, b- both of your points um, are are really appreciated. And I think we need to hear that and understand that uh, more. So all the better we're repeating it here. Uh, also, I would just say that the Europeans are probably not able to supply too much more gear, I wouldn't think. The Eastern European Countries have basically given everything that they had, their old, you know, Soviet-era gear. The Poles are making huge investments to modernize their army, but I'm sure, you know, the things that they're acquiring are for Poland. And, and the, again, the Biden administration has not put the pedal to the metal to, you know, again, just using tanks as an example. There are a hell of a lot of export M1s lying around that are previous you know, that were sold to other countries around the world that, that, you know, could have been in Ukraine or on their way to Ukraine with a little bit more political oomph from the president and the White House. And they just haven't done that. And there's also a continent's worth of F-16s in Europe. Yeah. Um, so um, uh, enough about our faults and shortcomings. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's, uh, let's turn a take advantage of Mason being here to tell us about others' faults, and that is how are the Russians doing, and specifically two things I want to ask you about. One is something that we haven't talked on this podcast in a while about, and that is um, the military industry and how it's suffering in or not in Russia. There's a lot of, for people following, I think we have a number of, um, of uh, within our audience that are following um, Twitter and other social media where I've seen throughout the summer a lot of disinformation out there with the Russians or Russian trolls or whatever putting out very clear data, which is wrong, <laughs> factually wrong, but it makes it look like the Russians are really rearming. Um, and so um, I- I'd love to hear that, um, how that's being visible over the last year or not on the front. And then the second thing is how effective are the Russians at hitting um, Ukraine um, beyond the trench warfare that we hear um, enough about We've seen over the last few days, and, and that's, I guess, a sub-question, is that a change in, in strategy? We've seen Russia targeting the Ukrainian military rear and targeting military um, uh, military objectives rather than civilian, or we've seen civilian too, but it's we're not used to this. Um, and so what are they up to and how much how successful are they with this maybe change in tactics tactics if not strategy sure so i'll take those uh, in order because it kind of flows together of their production and their ability to strike ukraine so the russians do have one hell of an industrial base to resupply sort of the bog standard material that they need to keep things going that's uh they've they've been able to resupply, you know, just our basic artillery tubes and low-level tanks of, you know, Russia can keep 
producing T-72s, maybe not the most up-to-date model, but at least enough to keep their units going for quite some time. I saw um, a great comparison uh, just the other day that so far in the war, they've lost one and a half U.S. Marine Corps in personnel and five times the German military in equipment, and they're still fighting. Maybe not the most effective, but they are finding ways to pull stuff out of storage. And, you know, it's, it, it may not be high end, but sometimes a, a T-62 can still be effective on the front lines, particularly when it's when it's fighting a Ukrainian T-64. But what they have really struggled with is those high end munitions of they have burned through their stocks of precision missiles so quickly and haven't been able to replace them very well due to not having access to um you know, Western provided chips and guided systems and that sort of thing, which is one way that sanctions have been incredibly, incredibly effective of, of course, they're never going to change Putin's intent, but they can absolutely affect Putin's capabilities uh, and sort of kneecap them in that way, which we've now seen with the Russians pivoting to relying on Iranian drones, those Shahed 131 and 136s. We actually, my team was just writing about this yesterday of their, the Russians are now building a domestic factory to produce copies of the Shahed uh, drones within Russia itself because the Iranians are asking for too much uh, in return for selling them. So this has really impacted a lot of Russian capabilities to hit Ukrainian rear areas, and they used a lot of their high-end missiles to hit civilian targets, I think, to try and have a terror effect when they probably could have been more effective uh, in a battlefield role. But they're starting to shift now, uh, particularly really in the last month or so, to try and hit... um, Still some civilian targets are trying to hit a lot of Ukrainian like grain warehouses in particular to put the crunch on with the Black Sea grain deal falling apart, but increasingly on Ukrainian air bases and command and control nodes, probably to try to disrupt the sort of uh, on the other side of the Ukrainian interdiction campaign against Russian targets. That's had mixed success. Uh, we haven't been able to see too much um, and also just don't. You know, I don't want to run battle damage assessments on Ukrainian bases, um, but we have seen them uh, getting through in some places. And the Ukrainians have been openly saying that if they've been having a slightly lower shoot down rate of incoming uh, Russian drones and missiles. So unclear exactly how much that's having an effect. But the Russians are, you know, as they sometimes do, their, their performance has been overall poor without this war. But that doesn't mean that they don't have successes and don't make uh, smart decisions, and they have been adapting more recently in that respect. You know, what they haven't, uh, that I can recall, been able to do something that the Ukrainians have been able to do, and that's to target uh, headquarters and um, not just, you know, bases that have runways and are fixed sites, but more mobile things like fuel and ammo depots. I mean, that, you know, the Russians get hit all the time. The number of, you know, general officers they've lost uh, is, is, there hasn't been anything that I can think of analogous on the Ukrainian side, which I think, again, makes you wonder about what's to come if the battlefield does become a little bit more mobile, a little bit more fluid, a little bit more, uh, you know, maneuver oriented, even in just a tactical way, whether, sure, the Russians have munitions that can hit precise locations, but they don't have, again, they have not demonstrated that I can think of the sort of overall kill chain capabilities to find a timely target and to hit it 
you know, while you can, while it's still worth hitting. Mason, tell me I'm, I'm wrong. No, that's right. Yeah. I mean, the Russians have discussed for years now, the, the, their term for it is they want to create a, a reconnaissance fire strike complex and they haven't been able to do that at scale. I, Very 1980s term, by the way. Oh my God. Yes, it is. I've, yeah, I've been, I've been neck deep in Russian military doctrine the last couple of weeks for a paper. I'm sorry. I'm it's, sorry. Yeah, making my eyes bleed. Um, but they haven't really been able to do that in terms of reactivity. Activity. Um, and particularly, actually, sort of to my earlier comment, they've really struggled with battle damage assessment of they've they've gotten slightly better, but really was sort of emblematic in the early stages of the war of they would if they would just treat if they hit a Ukrainian target, they would treat it as destroyed with no other confirmation. Um, and they still struggle with that uh, to a good amount, although they have gotten better. Um, but a big part of that is I think the, the Russians expected that they'd be able to rely on civilian collaborators and informants more than they uh, have uh, as part of their just sort of wider, massive misunderstanding of exactly how much resistance they would face. So that's certainly been a boon for the Ukrainians is that they are the Ukrainian force have been able to be much more mobile um, and prevent sort of sustained uh, damage by these Russian strikes. Well, that, that also suggests that if the First of all, that when and if Ukraine decides to commit a serious, you know, maneuver group to exploit a breakthrough, that the Russians might have a hard time responding to that, you know, to to target, you know, I don't think the unless it's done in a way that's very, you know, canalized or, you know, it's done poorly. You just have to wonder especially if the Ukrainians get in amongst the Russian rear, that's going to be really hard for the Russian army to respond to in a very effective way. Yeah. And I think even beyond capabilities of the Russian, Russian morale is very prone to sort of shocks we've seen. They, they, it's fascinating watching it all war. If they, sw it just seems to swing wildly. Of course, you know, we don't have a full awareness of it, but from what we can tell from, you know, uh, commentary on Telegram and the tendency of units to sort of release video appeals saying, we haven't gotten reinforcements in months, please help us. They, they 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 flip into this everything's collapsing mode relatively quickly even at minor ukrainian operations um i mean even it's like it's been a fascinating thing of uh like the limited ukrainian operations across the river in Kherson oblast that's been just like a toehold by ukrainian light infantry it's not a bridgehead it's not a prelude to a major operation from what we've seen but it has scared the hell out of russian commanders and so i think that is more you know, the, the Ukrainians have a real capability there to uh, shatter some of these units, particularly since on the Russian side, they're operating just this hod hodgepodge of, you know, airborne guys that have been on the line without a rest for a year and a half now, mobilized units, some weird PMCs, not Wagner Group, but they're trying to fill the gap with other units. Um, and it's holding for now. And the Russians have been doing well, but I think there's some real opportunities um, for the Ukrainians to exploit that and sort of attack along the seams of these Russian units. I, I do. I do want to talk about that river crossing operation a little bit. There are a couple of things that struck me that, but so, I mean, what was interesting about that to me is that, that first of all, it was a pretty impressive fireworks show. I can understand why those poor guys, uh, you know, were were shattered. It was also, I think, one of the earlier uses of uh, cluster munitions of DPICM, which you could sort of tell from the, you know, the drone footage of 
uh, the operation. Mason, is there anything else you can tell us about that? You know, everybody thought, okay, you know, this is going to be, it's going to be, first of all, everybody said, oh, it's just another raid. And there was clearly more than just a raid. I, I mean, I think to some degree, it may have been sort of a proof of principle for following up uh, a very serious barrage with, uh, you know, with infantry or, you know, with ground forces. But uh, I, I was not aware that it had had such a uh, you know demoralizing effect. I mean, I'd, you know, you'd seen the the, the uh, social media traffic and stuff like that, but on the unit itself that was there. So if you could tell us any more about that, that would be cool. Sure. It certainly comes a little bit up against the limits of what I want to do in terms of forecasting and assessing Ukrainian operations. But um, it well, had... just the Russian response or the or, you know or reaction to it. Sure. Yeah. So I mean, in large part, the the destruction of the I mean, it feels like it's been a year ago now, but of the uh, Novokovka Dam that caused all that flooding, we we assess was probably the Russians being worried legitimately or not that they faced an imminent Ukrainian cross-river operation and they wanted to preclude that. Um, as that flooding has receded, the Ukrainians have been able to shift. Uh, now they can drive over. across it. <laughs> exactly. Um, but so what the what the Russians did was when they blew the dam, they took advantage of the fact that they that was no longer a, an at-risk sector of the front line to shift a lot of units over. And a lot of the Russians fighting in western Zaporizhia Oblast uh, are guys that were previously defending that uh, Kherson Oblast area. And so what's left there is not very high quality Russian units. And that's sort of given uh, uh, the Ukrainians an opportunity to have some real effects of disrupting them um, and just sort of playing into the Russian need to sort of just shuffle units back and forth because they don't have an actual operational reserve. Um, unclear exactly how far it's going to go. I do think it's b uh, been blown a little bit out of proportion in some Western media of, I mean, it really is just like a light infantry toeholds, um, but still having some effects on, you know, the Russian ability to, they, they, the Russians had hoped to be able to treat that as an entirely quiet sector and they can't. And that's having almost certainly very good uh, benefits for the Ukrainians. So then staying on the topic, the larger topic of damages uh, on the Russian side of the front, um, what about those bridges? Um, we have, it's now becoming somewhat of a regularity that some bridge in Crimea gets blown up. Um, so how does this affect um, the um, Russian operations? Is it about logistics or is it something more? And why do the Ukrainians keep repeating doing this? What sense does it make for the operation? Sure. So it's definitely about disrupting Russian logistics. Um, the main Russian logistics line to southern Ukraine is still from the, the quote-unquote land bridge of eastern Ukraine through to Zaporizhzhia and Kherson Oblast, not up from Crimea, because that just simply can't sustain the amount of supplies. But Ukrainian strikes on Crimea are uh, interdicting and having an important effects on that sort of secondary supply line. One key thing we've been seeing, particularly around the uh, repeated Ukrainian strikes, is they don't have really the capabilities to permanently destroy these bridges because that is incredibly difficult to do from a distance. But the thing is that they don't even necessarily have to. If they can just disrupt the bridge long enough for repairs uh, to where the Russians can't really use it, 
And that's able to have the same effects of, you know, if if a bridge isn't operating for 11 days and then as soon as it's repaired, they hit it again, they can achieve the same effects without actually dropping the entire bridge. They're also being aided by the, uh, frankly, insane Russian decision to encourage continued tourism to Crimea in the middle of this war. And so we saw this of there, like the Russians aren't able to get logistics across because there's too many people on summer vacation blocking the bridges. It's unbelievable to see. Um, so the Ukrainians are able to do this sporadically. It certainly would be more effective, again, if they had higher end systems. I mean, attackums would be great. Um, and further supplies, they've been doing a lot with the UK provided uh, Storm Shadow missiles in particular. Um, and are able to sort of disrupt without completely stopping uh, Ukraine or pardon me, Russian supply lines and logistics coming out of Crimea. Well, it is kind of the uh, infrastructure version of the old saw that uh, a wounded soldier consumes more resources than a dead soldier does. Uh, uh, so, you know, the frustrations of the bridge repair crews, uh, you know, they may be Russian engineers are probably having a many Groundhog Day uh, experiences when it comes to uh, uh, repairing the it's time to go back to repair the bridge again. Well, Mason, uh, you've been very indulgent, as have you, Yulia. I mean, uh, it's good therapy for me uh, at the very at the very least. And it, I do think it's important to try to bring some perspective. Um, Yulia, you're quite right that the uh, you know the woe is me caucus is somewhat in the ascendant uh, in the West. So. Uh, Perhaps a dose of battlefield realism uh, will at least balance that out. Basically, we'll just repeat, it was wonderful to have you back. Let us threaten to do it again. Very much appreciate the the contributions you've made to the podcast and, and to the work you do every day. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. And I'd love to be back again soon. Good, good, good. Uh, so from me, Giselle Donnelly and Yulia Zosa, thanks so much for listening to the Eastern Front. Our podcast is dedicated to the security challenges that have arisen along the line from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website at AEI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter which will keep you up to date with the uh, articles that we write for other publications and the work that we do that does not get featured directly on the podcast. Finally, be in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, all one word. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, and even if you didn't enjoy it, but just endured it, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Goodbye for now.